I was. I know. I know I have a class full of them. Y'all are full of something. Anyway, so we are thankful for that. That is awesome. That's awesome. So we're, we, you did. You didn't give up. And you know what? I'm looking forward to meeting him. Well, good. Well, good. Well, that's a good. He's putting things together. Excellent. Well, we'll keep praying for him. His name is Derek. Okay. Who else has something this morning? So it's a praise report, prayer request. There. Anybody else? Okay. Praise God. That's good. Yes, sir. Um, what you guys are praying for is that it's hot on traffic and prayer prayer seed plant in the ground and it's trying to seed plant. Mm-hmm. And I was able to the first time in two years be able to talk to my boss. Awesome. Two years. That's amazing. Well, that is great. So we are just praying that the Lord will continue to bring that to fruition and bring total restoration. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Good. Good. Wednesday night, she responded to the altar call. That's right. That's good. I was so glad that you brought her. Okay. All right. Welcome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and mercy. We give you praise, glory, and honor, Lord God. And we know, Father, that there is nothing, God, outside of your purposes, God, of your will that you cannot accomplish. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for this husband who has come home. I pray, Father, that you would completely bring this restoration to close, Lord God, and that his heart would be set ablaze with passion for you. I thank you, Lord God, for reconciliation in Tommy's family, Lord. I pray that this daughter would be completely restored to fellowship with her father, but more importantly, completely restored to fellowship with you. I praise you, Lord God, for healing bodies, for touching, Lord God, for your grace of mercy being poured out among us, Lord. We give you praise, honor, and glory, and ask that you would open our ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to Revelation 12 again, and um, this morning, I'm super excited. I just want to, I just, I don't know where to start. We're going to hit into a, a, a portion of Revelation. Revelation 12, it's the, I would call it, if you were going to draw Revelation in a pyramid, in a, you know, a, whatever this is called, that shape. Sounds good. If you would, a triangle, there you go. See, he, he is listening. See, if you, if you put it in a triangle, then the, the apex of Revelation, I believe, is Revelation 12. It, is, it tells the tale and everything else fits around Revelation 12. So it's a key component to Revelation. And I read it in its entirety last week, but I'm not going to this week just for time's sake. But the portion of Scripture that I want to draw your attention to is is the portion where it says that Israel is given the wings of the eagle. I'm going to have to read it. War broke out. Another son. She gave birth to a son. War broke out in heaven. Okay. The serpent, he was thrown, and they overcame. And I heard the voice, and the anointed one, the accuser, has been thrown out. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Where the testament, there shall rejoice, O heavens. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. This is 12. Woe to you, earth. 
Now the dragon um, had been thrown down to earth. He stalked the woman who had given birth to the male child. That's Christ. We know the, the male child there is Christ. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so she might fly away from the presence of the serpent into the wilderness to, take play, to, to the place where she was taking care of for a time, time, and, a, and a, a time and a half. So that's the three and a half last years of tribulation. Now, as this... As we see this, we talked about last week that we cannot bring in <clears throat> modern ciphers, modern keys into an ancient text and actually do the text justice. There's a rule in interpretation of Scripture, a hermeneutical rule. It is Scripture interprets Scripture. CNN, Fox... And some very high-powered um, end-time teacher, they, John Hagee may be a great teacher, but John Hagee is not our first stop at interpreting Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Because before John Hagee was ever, ever born, there were people interpreting the Scriptures by the Scripture. Because all Scripture is given by God. That God moved on the, the men of old, the people of old, the prophetic. He moved on men and that he moved them along. So that the word of God is from his very mouth. Breathed to man's spirit by the spirit of God. And man wrote down the words of God. So it's God interacting with man. So when we look at this and we take a scripture like, and she was given the wings of the great eagle. Now, I can't tell you how many times in my life growing up with an exegetical method of let's just let anything modern interpret something old. I was taught that this would be America helping Israel. The wings of the great eagle. How many of you have heard it? Yeah, it was very common. The problem with that is how could Tertullian or Polycarp or Jerome or John himself or Peter or how would they, how could they have possibly ever come up with the right interpretation? They would have never because America was not, a, I mean, we're new in the front of countries. We're an infant. So they would be left here at the time of its writing, even when John wrote it, Dear Churches. That's a letter. Dear, and he names the churches, comma. And the rest of the body is to, the rest, is to all those churches. It would be like he wrote a letter to them in their day that they would never be able to comprehend. Do you all see what I'm saying? Because America is not even on the... It's so far away. So we, that's what the problem with that is. And so if we take off the obvious, Scripture has to set first in its original horizon. You know what I mean? It has to be in its original sense. It has to be talking first to its original audience. If I write a letter to Dolores, dear Dolores, and I say, I talked to you about something. Every person, if you find that letter in a thousand years, they have to understand they can't make Dolores a, a type of a 
a person for another day that meant something. Everybody knows I was writing a letter to Dolores about something that we were talking about. Not to, it's not, well, it, it may be to, it may not be, it may, right here, that's a good point. It may be, it's to Dolores. But see, the Bible is a living document. So it could be, it's to Dolores, but for Tommy. Right. So that's the Bible. The Bible, I've said this so many times, the Bible is not written to you. It's written for you. See, and that's where you, and so, and I'm not, not taking away from the power of the Bible in your own life. Not, don't, don't misunderstand that. But see, getting that mindset first and foremost that the Bible is not written to me. So in other words, you can't make your first stop 2023. You have to make it its original horizon. Or you will come up with all kinds of wonky interpretations. If you make it an original horizon first, you gain the context for what the scripture's saying, and then you make who's it written to, and then you bring your application from that, and you put it in your modern horizon. Yes, it becomes something that you can, but if we don't start in that, we wind up all over the place. So when we look at this, what would that mean? I told y'all last week, given the wings of the great eagle, what does that mean? If scripture interprets scripture, it's quite easy. It's said in Deuteronomy 32, I will, I will carry you. In the song of Moses, I carried you on the wings of a great, on the wings of an eagle when I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you to the wilderness. All John is doing is he is capturing the thought to the people of what God has already done and therefore bringing him into the reality of what he will do again. Now, with that said, where does the wings of the great eagle, a.k.a. God in his sovereign power, where does he take them? Where did he take them in the time of Egypt? To the wilderness. Where's he taking them here? To the wilderness. And so then what comes to light in the rest of the Old Testament is a group of prophecies known as the desert prophecies. How many of you, when I say the desert prophecies, you're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that is. I want to see a hand. That's what I thought. Never heard it. Because what happens is if we don't exegete the Word of God, interpret the Word of God with proper hermeneutic or interpretive structures, then we miss the word of God just becomes this cloudy document of like, what does it mean? And we say things like, well, what it means to me and what it means to me somehow gets turned into in our day of my truth. And see, that's what happens. That's where you, that's the, that's the migration of idiots. Y'all knew I was going to say something like that, didn't you? Because I, I, I want you to feel that. Because I want you to say, well, I'm no idiot. Then don't migrate like one. Right? So here we are. And we're going to look at this. Now let's turn to Habakkuk 3. How many of you have been in old Habakkuk lately? Probably not because you didn't know what the heck it was talking about. 
maybe, you know? Yeah, look at her. She's smart aleck here. No, it's not smart aleck, smart. Okay, I'm going to go. How do I want to get there? Let's do it right. Nah. Okay, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigayanoth. Who knows what Shigayanoth is? Y'all like, sure, use that word today. <laughs> Sounds like it, doesn't it? Shagayanoth is a is a passionate song with a a um, a rhythmic but kind of a chaotic melody. And so they ran through the streets and around and around and around and around where the rabbit couldn't go. And y'all know what I'm talking about. So that's a that would be a modern Shagayanoth. It's a really like, and that may be a terrible example, but it's a, it's a very fast song that that's very, has a lot of passion. You know those kind of songs that you hear that just make your heart beat just a little bit faster? That is this, this Habakkuk wrote a song, and it's written, excuse me, in Shagayanoth. It's written in a radical, fast beat, so when they hear it, they, it, makes, it should make their heart do what? Go, I mean. Of this thing. Okay, I think I keep pushing that little button right there. I know. So, yeah, this should get mad again. So it kind of comes from that, doesn't it? So we look at that. So what we're looking at here is, is Habakkuk is writing this. So it, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. Oh, Lord, I have heard, <clears throat> excuse me, oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do... Um, do I fear? I'm so, if we said that in, how would that sound in the Shagayanoth? I mean, who, oh, Lord, I mean, it would be passionate, wouldn't it? Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord. And do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. For God came from Teman. I want you to put that in your head, Teman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. Put that in your head. Selah. So right there, Selah. And it has another part to it. Think about it and respond. Think about it and respond. A lot of people think about a lot of things, but they never respond. So think about it and respond. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Wow, what are we talking about? Well, Habakkuk is writing this prophetic song, and he says the Lord, the shining one, he comes from T-Man. Well, we don't know where T-Man is, do we? How many are like, I know exactly where that's at. I was there this week. No, you know where. You're right. Do you have it in your Bible right there, or do you already study? Okay. It is. I'm so impressed. It's out the Quinlan. It's an... T-Man, not to be confused with the 80s cartoon, He-Man. Yeah, T-Man. So T-Man is in Edom. Edom is in modern day Jordan. 
Jordan. See, these are real places. And then Mount Paran, where's it? Can you have it there? Saudi Arabia. Mount Paran is believed by most theologians, you can get a theologian to argue about anything, is believed to be a figurative name, a poetic name of Mount Sinai. So what we're talking about here is we're, Habakkuk is referencing God coming to where? Sinai, whenever Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. But he's not referencing it exactly like the first time the Lord came to Sinai. He's referencing it in another context of wrath. He's referencing it in another context of pestilence goes before him. You see that? Now when, okay, Israel. Right now, Israel, if you, an Orthodox Jew, they do not believe what? That Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one prophesied. Now, the Messianic Jews believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, an, an, Israel, an Orthodox Jew, if you were to ask them, is the Lord returning, what would they say? Well, no, that's not true. Nope, nope, no, no. To a Jewish mind, they would say, yes, he's returning. Because they see in the Old Testament, see, the, the New Testament gives us nothing new about the Lord's return. Very little. I won't say nothing. Very little new about the Lord's return. Jesus, the Mount on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus sat there and he taught from the Old Testament about the Lord's return, referencing scripture and verse. The Lord's return being his return. So we have from the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish context, we have a return of the Lord. And you, we have also a context of what? A return of the Lord. But we're like, what are we, how does that work? How could they believe in a return of the Lord when they don't believe he came the first time? Well, see, that's where we miss it. They do believe he came the first time. They believe he came on Sinai. When the Lord came to Sinai. That's the language of the Old Covenant. The Lord came to the earth. He manifested His presence in the cloud that covered the, the, the mountain. And there, was, and there was thunder and there was lightning and there was a pillars of... I mean, the earth shook at the, the presence of the Lord descended on the mountain. And we see the covering is the Jewish word hoopah. What do you use a hoopah for? A marriage ceremony. And all the people, they took their ritual bath, their mikvah. Think, is that right, Deborah? You're here. A mikvah. See, she's proud of me now. So they took their mikvah and they all got clean because what bride wants to be dirty on her wedding day? And then after that, they, they said, I do, I do, I do, I do. And is that called the batula? Batula? I don't know. Anyway, that's all right. We don't have to. But they gave their, they gave their vows. What did Israel do that day? 
They got married. They got married. And then afterwards, they came up, the 70 came up on the mountain, and what did they do? They had a feast. It was a wedding feast. See, you miss it if you don't understand. Because we have taken, we have taken a New Testament reality to the Bible. And we've, we've interpreted it from a Western lens starting about Martin Luther. And we've shoved back in all this crap. Crap. And we've come up with doctrine that is as far off from the Word of God as a person can be. I asked the Lord this morning, why did it take me so long to learn this? He said, Andrew, because you were so far off. That's what he said to me this morning. He said, it takes a long time when a journey is long. I mean, I couldn't, he's like, if I could have just moved you this much, it wouldn't have been long. But it's been a long journey. You were so, why was it a long journey? You were so far off. How many of you are willing to know that you're that far off? That's what the Lord first off told me. Ask of me and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. And I said, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get to things I don't know. I've never found anything. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But the Lord knows my heart. You know what I mean? I, I, I had this pride of knowledge in my heart that is just so stupid. And so I put my hands on the steering wheel and I said, okay, Lord, tell me what to ask. What I mean is what do I not know? And he didn't strike me dead because he's a God of mercy. He created the invitation. And then it was probably three years later. Three years Y'all want a quick work? Show up more. So, it, you know, three years. I'm sitting in my office and the, and the voice of the Lord comes to me again. Ask of me and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. But this time it was like there was a huge spotlight on the portion of Scripture that said you know not. And he said, you're a no-not. And I, all of a sudden, in my, for the first time in many years, maybe since childhood, I actually since after fractions proved it, that I, I moved to the category of a no-not. And I wonder how many of you have moved ever to the category of a no-not. It's a hard place to get to because it will cost you your pride. And then the Lord spoke to me after that, and I realized what he was saying. It's not that you need to ask the right questions. It's that you need to get in the student's seat. And then he told me, he said, unless you come to me as a child, you have no part of me. You see, children know they know nothing. And so I, my, my message to the body of Christ today is understand that you don't know, not everything, but come to the, the disturbing reality that you may know very little indeed. I mean, that's, that scares me a little bit. I may know very little indeed. And I stood there looking at that, and I thought, dear God. And for the first time in years, revelation turned on because in that moment, I mean, I had revelation, but not like, not, I, mean, like I mean, like moving leaps and bounds from beliefs. And I know that scares some people. Yes, Deborah. 
yes. And I'll trust you in the journey of learning and, and, and it's what it does. James, I believe it says, in humility, receive the engrafted word of truth, which is able to save your souls. That's true, but then, but then see, what, what is the condition of the soul? It, James just told us, what is the condition of the soul? Because we know the soul is the heart. What does James just say the condition of the soul has to be to receive the seed? Humility. See, hard soul, that bird, bird food soul, you know what I'm talking about? You, you cast the seed and the birds just come take it. The bird, all you're doing is feeding the birds. That's the heart of pride. There's no humility. No humility. And I think that we've been proud of our pride. I think that's the American way, y'all. <clears throat> of course. But you know what? We need to come to the place where we're humble. That's why it says if you'll humble yourselves and pray. I, I, think, I think, Lord, is my heart. And I, I know. I know, guys. I know. Our heart is so filled with itself. And then we see the other two types of soul. And, and the one, it receives the seed, right? But it's busy, and the other is persecution. But see, neither one of those two types, there's four types of soul. Soil, sorry, soul. You know, <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about. There's four types of soul. And so the, the two don't receive anything. I mean, the two receive, but they don't produce anything. The one receives nothing. There's only one type of soul that actually yields a harvest. So I think you're like, what are you trying to say, Andrea Scaris? Yeah, yeah. I, I would try to take you to the place to where you stand squarely before the face of God. And you dispense with your excuses and your self-assertions and your plans and your purposes and all of your tenements of pride and your belief systems. And you let the Lord completely lay you bare. And humble you to the place that the word of God can actually cause a fissure, a furrow in your life that will bring forth. Because the seed never changes. <clears throat> the seed does what the seed does. The soil, how the soil works with the seed determines the fruit in a person's life. I'm going to move on because I'm getting sidetracked here. And so we see here what I just read in Habakkuk. We see he came. <clears throat> see the Lord came from... <clears throat> the desert prophecies. The Lord came from T-Men, Jordan, modern-day Jordan, Edom. And the Lord descended on Mount Paran, figurative name for Sinai. So the Jew believes the Lord that Yahweh, Yahweh is returning. Mount Sinai was a big deal in the Old Testament. Huge deal. Now, it was so big, where whenever Elijah, whenever Jezebel threatened his head, where did he go? He went to Sinai. Horeb, another name for Sinai. He went, isn't that funny? He went back to Sinai. And he stood in a cave. What cave do you think he was looking for? You know, the one that Moses, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. A cave, and, my, and I'll put my hand on you, and your glory will pass by. So when Elijah was on the run from Jezebel, he ran to Sinai. Whenever Jezebel, the, this harlot queen, whenever she 
started chasing the prophetic. Where did he run? He ran to. We're seeing the same thing over and over here. You're seeing him come. But then we see John the Baptist in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he comes from the wilderness into Jerusalem. And Jezebel, a Jezebel type, Philip's harlot woman live in his baby not even baby mama his mistress who his daughter because John John the Baptist prophesied against their activity of living in adultery and apparently they don't like to hear about adultery any more than the modern day American church doesn't because we're in love so they didn't they didn't like it anymore and so what happened was is that it cost John the Baptist his head because Salome the daughter of Philip's live-in danced before him and pleased him and she said what do you want up to a half of the kingdom can you imagine asking for someone's what head what did Jezebel say she was going to do to cut off his head we see, the, we see the lopping off of the head of the prophetic right there in type. As the Jezebel type goes for his head. You're going to see this over and over again. The Jezebel type is always the harlot, Babel, mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. What does that mean, mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots? As I told some people this morning, a mystery in the Word of God is not something that can't be known. It's something that can only be known by revelation. And so here we see, what is the mystery? This is what I was so excited to tell y'all. I looked up this morning, the mother of all harlots, right? I'm looking at that. This is like Revelation 19. I'll skip ahead a little bit. The mother of all harlots. What does that mean? Well, if you find the, the origin, see... The law of first mentions is super important in the Bible. So where is Babel talked about? In the plain of Shinar in Genesis 11. The word Babel means this. Are y'all ready? Babel is made of two words. El, what does El mean? Y'all should know this. El, God, right. Bab, B-A-B. What does it mean? Gate. Gate of God. But not gate of Yahweh. They are building, Nimrod is building this ziggurat. He's trying to build a gate to the gods because he's trying to get another incursion like the Genesis 6 one where they mixed with, there were some sort of demonic things that were going on as they mixed. And so what happens is, is from that place, God judges it because the only place this is going to lead to is another full-out judgment. When God says, oh my gosh, they're unified, they can do anything. It doesn't mean they can do anything like overthrow God. It means they can do anything that they set to do that will bring these morons to their full judgment, just like last time. Right? And so in mercy, in mercy, God confused their languages. And that's where we... The etymology of the word meaning confusion, we get it from. But Revelation says that Babel, Bab-el, the gate of God, is the mother of all harlots. Because every idolatrous nation and religion from Sumerian to Greek mythology to, to, to Mott and, and Baal, all of them started right there at that place. As that woman's belly at Babel, Babylon began to swell, and as the nations were cast out, 
every demonic, idolatrous practice was born. The mother of all harlots. Is that not? I'm telling you this morning, I was like, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I was so excited to see that. But then on the, y'all should already be, some of you should already be tracking. My kids, I see a space back there grinning. The gate of God, Babel. What is the church called? Bethel. Genesis 28. Jacob dreamed a dream and a ladder was set up to heaven from the earth to the sky and angels ascended and descended on it and he woke up and he said, whoa, this is nother than I'll call this place Bethel, the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus calls Nathaniel. He said, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under a fig tree. He said, whoa, you're the Christ. He said, that, you think I'm the Christ because I said that? He said, you're going to see the heavens open. And an a ladder. He said, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on who? On him. On the Son of Man. Him in that context. So what did Jesus just say he was? He's the gate of heaven. And then he said he's the gate of heaven. He's the door. Same language. He's also the house. He dwells. He, God dwells in him. But then in the New Testament, after he burst the church... What does he say you are? What are we collectively, Paul, in the book of Corinthians? What are we collectively? What? Know you not? Your body is the temple, gate, house. What are you individually? He goes on a little while later and he talks about every person's body individually being. That's why when he says, Peter goes ahead and he quotes Leviticus and he said, you are Kedoshim. Because God is kadosh. You're like, what did you just say? You are holiness because God is holy. You think that you can live in your life being the house of God and not be a holy habitation? You're not actually playing with a full deck. Your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. I don't care how genuine you are in your belief of that nonsense. You are false. Well, Andrew, what kind of holiness are you talking about? Hair and makeup? No, no, no. I'm talking about the real thing. I'm talking about the real holiness where the laws of God are written on my heart. Because you see, when Jesus, when he said, on he in the Moses-type moment, stands on the mountain and giving the sermon of the Beatitudes. He said, you have heard it said. He could be turning to you, Tommy, and going, you have heard it said. Do not commit adultery. He's like, and the Jews would be going, yeah, I know. I know where that's at. I know that's in the part of the Big Ten. And he said, but I say, if you look upon a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He didn't make it easier, did he? Because you want to see how this works? We've missed this in the church. We say, because our language, our English language creates blocks in our little English minds. 
And so when we hear, Christ fulfilled the law. What you hear, because what I heard, because I'm just like you, I have the same ears you have. What I heard was there's no need for the law. It's fulfilled. Check. Done. Put it away. Fulfilled. That's what we, right? Like you've got a prescription fulfilled. You don't, you know, it's done. But see, this is a better rendering of it. Christ saying, it's saying, I didn't come to, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Like it's not check and done. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to be the fullness of it. So here's how this works. Moses only led them from Sinai so far. I'm talking to y'all how to be holy. The real kind of holiness that doesn't have to do with any rules and regulations because that's just people who are trying to cover their sin, not actually get rid of that. The people who come across as the most holy with the rules and regulations, I have learned to start saying this because I'm old enough now not to give a poop. I, I am. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me anymore. When a guy, especially men, the men are the worst. You don't need to be wearing that or this or that or you know that. I'll go, I'll say, to the person, right to their face. So it's been my observation through the years that a man who wants to levy women with a lot of rules is trying to cover up a egregious sin in their own life. What is it's going on in you? It's truth. You watch. You go to you go to holiness holiness churches that have all the rules. There'll be so much. You not every time, but here it is: perversion, incest, adultery. It gets gross in there because they've got all these rules and they're trying, to, they're trying to manage a sin nature by covering you up. The Bible doesn't say if you struggle with lust to cover up a woman. That's very Islam, how very Islamic of you. The Bible says if you struggle with lust, pluck out your eye. Yet I don't see any men with eye patches. If you struggle with cut off your arm. You see what I'm saying? The onus is on the person with the lust, not on the object of the lust. That's just a little side note for me. Fullness. Moses brought them so far. All Moses could do was deal with the issues around the person. All he could do. He could tell women what to wear and men what not to wear. Men what to wear. He could tell women how to act and men how to act. And women, that's all he could do. He just because their sin nature was so stupidly overgrown. All he could do is go, well, don't do that. Because you make the rules by what you do. Have you ever seen a rule somewhere that says, you shall, do not flush um, cabbage down the sink. You're like, this is what you should say. Who? What moron? Tried to flush cabbage down the sink. You know, wherever there's a rule, there was a moron who tried to do it. Come on. That's all the law can do is manage the morons. Y'all may have never heard this before, but this will, this will set you free. Now here, fullness. So Christ, if you, can, if you look, you've heard the law say, brings them, he brings them like here's a line. Right up to Moses. And he says, but I say, if you look on a woman in lust, you commit adultery in your heart. What he just did is he didn't bring them up to the regulation. He brought them right up to the regulation. 
And he opened his arms and he invited them into fullness to where if they fall into his arms of grace, they fall into the fullness. What do you mean, Andrea? The fullness of a changed heart. The fullness of John 1.12. To all who receive him, to all who believe his name, to them he gives power to become the sons of God. And sons of God, I'm here to tell you folks, don't look on women in lust. And you say, Andrea, this is impossible. It's only impossible because you've never heard the gospel. You've heard some contrived, cooked up religious version of the gospel that leaves you using duties and rules to try and try and exact some false version of holiness. And God says, you are kedoshim. You are holiness because I am holy. And whatever's in the seed is what is in the fruit. The seed, if he has sown, Peter said, that Christ sowed his divine nature in you. And if his divine nature is in you and you can't figure out how to produce holiness, then I have to bring you back to, I don't know that your soil had enough humility to do anything other than feed the birds. Or maybe, maybe you did receive it. Maybe there was a moment of humility and you were truly repentant. But the cares of the world, the lusts of so many things, the conformity to the world, and you started looking at, that looks pretty and that looks nice. And then the call of the world, the call of an old life, you begin to go, oh. And what you did is you stopped trusting in the word and you started trusting in the circumstances. And you and the magpie just begin to be led off by everything shiny. And what happened to that seed? Absolutely nothing that I can tell you about. Because so many of you in here, maybe one or two, many, I won't, so many who will hear this will say, that has been That has been the walk of my life, my whole Christian life, is I've come so far and I've fallen back. And I've come so far and I fall back into the same old sin, the same old old pit of despair, the same old lifestyle, the same old mindsets, the same old... It's because you haven't come to fullness. Because you've not heard the gospel. You've heard a religious attempt... At presenting you with a few facts that keep you in control the whole time. Control of your finances, control of your time, and control of your talents. The Spirit's working control. Not the self-working control of the things of the Spirit. And so we see this. And now you're like, Andrew, I thought we were talking about revelation. We are. Because here, this desert prophecy, this tells us of a, of a story in the Word of God. If I ask you right now, where is Christ returning to? Geographically, pinpoint the place. What are you going to tell me? Y'all are all going to say Mount of Olives. Because you got that scripture in Zechariah, right? 
His foot touches down the Mount of Olives. But see, if you don't understand the desert prophecies, you've missed a whole lot. Does he go to the Mount of Olives? Absolutely. Does he stand on the Mount of Olives? Absolutely. But I don't read a Bible through the lens of the desert prophecies that talks about him actually teeing up at the Mount of Olives. He does, but where? He do- That's good. In the clouds, but where does he return to earth? I believe, I believe he's going to, come, he's going to fulfill all the prophecies that are not fulfilled as yet fully. And that he's going, to, he's going to lead Israel out like Moses. He's going to take the promised land like Joshua. And he is going to sit on the throne of David. So what are you saying, Andrea? See, I know y'all are looking at me like a calf at a new gate because you've never heard this, because you've never heard of the desert prophecies. Because you haven't read this. I just read it to you. Oh, Lord, I have heard of you. Do not fear. Revive your work in the midst of the years. And he will. God came from T-Man and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. The rays flashed from his hand. That's Matthew 24. As he said, when, where will the sun come? He, the, he was tell, Jesus teaching his disciples, what's your coming going to be like? It's going to be like the lightning. But lightning is a really bad interpretation. You know why? Read the rest of the scripture. I don't have time to go there. You can go there. You should know it by heart by now. As lightning flashes from the and sh- shows in the west. Problem. You're, you teach. You teach. Tell me what's wrong with that scripture. It's very, no, don't make it hard. Don't make it hard. Let me go. Let me go. Let me just tell you. Oh, good job, Brian. You are smart. You, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that's right. See, lightning does not flash from the east to the west, does it? It may. Lightning, cloud to surface, negatively charged ions hit positively charged, charged ions on the earth. That's called cloud to surface lightning. Cloud to cloud lightning is it's when, see, the, cloud, the top part of the cloud becomes negatively charged and the bottom part becomes positively charged and vice versa. And it comes up against another cloud and the positive and the negative say, cloud to cloud lightning. Both are lightning. So what have I just said? Well, it doesn't, lightning doesn't necessarily have to, what is that scripture saying? Look up the word lightning in the Hebrew. It also can mean lightning, yes. Interpreter said, that sounds good to me, put lightning. But it also can mean rays. What actually does come from east to west that has rays? He's, we just read it there here. And in, in his hand, his rays are the hiding of his power. So he dawns and Malachi and the sun, the S-U-N of righteousness, shall rise with healing in his wings. See, he's already risen, but he's already not yet risen too. Because the world's going to need a great healing on that day, Tommy. Because the world is going to be left in ruins. And so much of the earth is ignorant when it comes to this type of thing. I heard this morning. I looked. I was watching news. Let me just read what I, a quote from a group of college students that they're quoting. They're chanting this in America right now. College students. In the capital, all across the United States. You know what they're chanting? From the river to the sea. From the river to the sea. From the river to... You know what they're saying? 
They're quoting, they're quoting the Palestinian Hamas objective to push Israel to conquer all of the promised land from the River Jordan to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. They are saying they want to annihilate Israel. And because we have not taught our children the Bible, we've taught them westernized version of replacement theology. We now have kids who have grown up in Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian churches and Assembly of God and charismatic churches across the nation who are so stupid enough to stand and quote, from the river to the sea. Dear God, They don't more know about the Bible and what the prophecies say than a man in the moon. They're lost as a goose in a hailstorm. They don't know if they're scratching their butt or winding their head. Watch or whatever it goes. You know what I'm talking about? Scratching their watch or winding their... You got it. Yeah, you know, you take them home with you. Yeah. You say, Andrew, why do you talk like that? Because sometimes that's the only thing that penetrates your brains. I will use any tool I have in my arsenal. Paul did the same thing. He told the people at the church of Galatia, I wish you'd castrate yourselves. That's what he said. Cut yourself off. That's what we we, we, we have to teach this in Sunday school. So we change it a little bit, you know, to make it a little more, a little euphemistic. But that's what he's saying. And so here, here we look at this and we understand that the Lord, he is coming and he is going. Do you say, Andrea, I just don't believe what you're saying. You don't have to. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to at all. But I do ask you, I do ask you to study it. I'll, I'll give you a book for those of you who would like to study this. It's a book by a man, his name is Joel Richardson, Joel Richardson, and he wrote a book called From Sinai to Zion, and it is, it's it's scholarly, but it's worth reading. He actually takes the desert prophecies, and he brings them to life in the context of the end time saga that's playing out right now. So you say, Andrea, what's going to happen with Israel? I don't know. Is this going to be the thing that causes the thing, or is this just another thing in a series of things? But if you got eyes to see, you should be able to have a spirit of Issachar, the sons of Issachar, and see the signs of the time. From Sinai to Zion, Joel Richardson. I recommend it highly. It is a great, great exegetical work, in my opinion. So as we look in Deuteronomy 33, we see, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seor upon us. See, you see the Hebrew, the the Lord came. You see the language? The Lord came. Now, here, here, this is the fun part, y'all. The Orthodox Jew is waiting for the Lord to return because in their mind, he returned at Sinai. He came the first time at Sinai. And they're waiting for him to return with his, as his, as the anointed one, Right? Christians are waiting for Christ to return because we know him as obviously the anointed one that scripture fulfilled. And he's returning to finish. The first part of his mission was a baby in a manger. The second part is a man riding a white horse. So we see, and and we see the two comings emerging in the old covenant. We see the suffering servant 
And then we also see the reigning king. But see, it gets confused for the Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're still waiting on an, an anointed one. And that will be to them his return. Because he came the first time on Sinai. Now, to Christians, he's coming back. We under, I don't have to go over that one. To Muslims, the, uh, how do I say it? Hamadin, ha, Hama, I mean, who knows this? The Hamadin, he's coming. That's the, the return of the Messiah, who is Mohammed. The Lahamadid or something like that. He's coming, known as the 12th Imam, and he will return. So, every, and they're waiting on, not the same figure, but they have the same, we have, see how it's all converging to just one little hot spot in a place called Israel. Just so tiny. And we're all wondering about, and some people think, that the church has replaced Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The church is grafted into the vine. You've just been grafted in. And so the people who think that the church has replaced Israel, they don't believe that there'll be a millennial kingdom. They're called amillennialists. A meaning not, not millennial. They think that we're in a version of the millennial right now. It's a sad reality if it is. You know what I mean? And then you have post-millennial who think that the millennial, that he'll return at the post of the millennial once we get the earth in such a great shape that it'll be like heaven on earth. And when it gets good enough, he'll show up. Because the earth, wait, wait, because Satan's already been bound for a thousand years and the earth is just getting gooder and gooder and gooder. I mean, we're going to have to have that pipe if we're all, we're going to have to all smoke it together or we're not going to be able to, right? That's where... We're like, yeah, we're going to go away from that one. And so we have to have, and this is what I've learned. I used to think, well, you know, eschatology is not that important because we don't know. We all have our different views, so let's not quibble over end time eschatology, the end of the age. But then I've come to realize if our eschatology is wrong, if you're aiming at the wrong target, you, you can't hardly. Now, I'm not saying that we can know there are things we can't know with, with certain dogma. But we do need to be students of eschatology because we, you, and many of you in here may go, I just don't like to think about that. If you don't think about it and you don't teach it and you don't do the work of it, then how, how do I know that your kids are not going to be the ones chanting in the capital from the river to the sea? Because no one's taught, no one's bothered. You see what I'm saying there? And so this is important, and that's what, and I, I, I promise you, that was my version of, I was like, you know, they, I would listen to a preacher, and I knew they had a different eschatological viewpoint, but I was like, you know, it's all right. But then I didn't really care, but now I listen, and I've learned amillennial, postmillennial, um, historical, premillennial, dispensational, pre now I know them all, and no, I can't listen to a preacher, I don't go, oh, that's dispensationalism. That's hist he's historical. Oh, that's amillennial. That's post. Now I can pick it out. Their, see, their beliefs, their end-time belief populates all of their teaching. Well, my, my, 
It is. Well, my, my Jewish rabbi guy that took us around the, um, the city when we were in Jerusalem, he told me, because we went by the Valley of Henna, the Valley of Gehenna, I was like, oh, that's, he said, you'll know it as your New Testament version of, of hell, you know, it's city dump right there. And I went, oh, yeah. And I said, and I said, um, I said well, what, what's your belief on it? I always ask him, what's your belief on it? He said, well, we don't really believe in hell like a New Testament believer believes in hell. Because you, and I thought, oh, I said, well, that makes sense. There's not a lot of talk about hell in the Old Covenant. You really have to have Jesus' teaching to develop the concept. And he went, well, we believe on hell more like a, a root canal. His words. It's not pleasant, but it's something people have to go through, and then the fire will purify them, and then they'll be brought in. I'm quoting his exact words right here. I went, wow. I said, so like... I said, so like, you know, people like Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, you know, but see, that's New Testament. I quoted somebody in the Old Testament. Um, he said, well, you know, different ones. I said, like, I said, you know, I said, like Manasseh, he, he repented at the end, and he, he didn't like that at all. He went, oh, we don't think it was a true repentance. So we have different, you know, I was like, oh. So I said, I said so he got a bad root canal. <laughs> So, you know, he, he moved on. We, we, he was a great guy. He was fun to talk to. He was a Canadian who was into WWF. He knew every wrestler in the world. So we had fun with him. And so what we look at here is that we have our different point of view, but it's important that we understand what the Word says. So if we understand the desert prophecies, so what does that mean for us? I mean, I believe that the Lord is going, this is how I see it in my mind. I mean, I can just keep going here. And he said, Lord, come from Sinai, and he dawned on Seir upon us. And he shone from, the, from Mount Paran. And he came from the ten thousands of, he came with ten thousands of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. That's Deuteronomy 33. Is that talking about the first touchdown, the first Sinai or the second? He uses the same language as Revelation that he comes with ten thousand of his saints or angels his holy ones so what we're looking at here and where does he touch down it says you don't think he touched down let's go look at i know i mean i'm no i'm just looking I, that's good i want to look now let's go to isaiah let's go to isaiah 62 let's go we can look at isaiah 62 most uncomfortable. You probably won't hear preachers um, reading this from the pulpits on Sunday morning. Okay. Is it 61? I always get this one. I lose it. The Basara one. He's coming from Basara. Why can't I find it? Maybe it's in my notes. Where his blood, oh, 34. Is it Isaiah 34? Yes, Isaiah. Okay, here it is. Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all the nations in the world and all its offspring. For Adonai is enraged at all the nations. Who's he enraged at? And furious at all their armies, and he will utterly destroy them, and he will give them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and the stench of their corpses will rise, and the hills will be drenched with their blood. Then all the hosts of heaven will dissolve, and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll. That's Revelation. 
so their array will wither and the leaf dropping from its vine and like a fig shriveling from the fig tree. Jesus is quoting that on Matthew 24. It's Jesus. I mean, you've got to know your Bible. And then he goes on to say, For my word has drunk, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, I will come down upon Edom, Teman, Jordan, Sierra, all the same place. Upon the people I have devoted to judgment. The sword of Adonai is filled with blood, gorged with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys and rams. For Adonai has a sacrifice in Basra, Jordan, a great slaughter in the land of Eden, Jordan. Wild oxen will go down from them, bull calves with mighty steers, so their land will be soaked with blood and their dust greasy with fat. For Adonai has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the hostility against Zion. Now, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord, this is where we live in our Western church, and this is great. I don't take from this, but you can't just, you can't truncate the message. Jesus said this, and we're fixing to leave right now. We're already late. Jesus said this, for the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has to preach freedom to the captives, um, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll in mid-sentence. He didn't say, what's the rest of the sentence? And to declare the day of the vengeance of our God. He didn't say, he wasn't a Rastafarian, dreadlock-toting, ukulele-playing hippie. And he's like, it's just peace here. He didn't say the rest of it because there's a pause It's going to, the vengeance, the day of vengeance is going to be fulfilled. And that is what Revelation unpacks with perfect clarity. And the Bible here describes him actually marching through from the Sinai Peninsula. Who else did that? A dude by the name of Moses. Marching from the, I don't know how he marches. I know y'all are getting hung up on, I don't know. How did he walk through walls? How did he eat fish? Marching through the land with his garments dripping in the blood of the nations. And that disturbs you? Good. If it disturbs you, it's because you've never heard it. And you're not fully in possession of the facts. And if you had the full facts, the onus on the Great Commission would be so much greater. We're dismissed.